the book of Jude. The last book that we are going as we go through the Bible, except for Revelation, which will start Sunday, January 2nd. By the way, I should mention this next Wednesday night, um, what we're going to do is it's just going to be a time of discussion, questions and answers and things like that. So if you have any Bible questions or questions about particular situations, ethical issues, questions about our church or you know anything that you've always wanted to ask but you haven't gone to the trouble of making an appointment and coming in and doing that, um, and even if you have questions that you're uh, you know, too shy to, to uh, stand up and ask the question, um, you can just write it down and, and uh, you know, turn it in to me, and, and we'll just go through. I just want to have an informal time as we finish the year um, to, to just be able to talk as a family, as a body. And so keep that in mind if there are questions that you've been thinking about or situations that you're curious about, then that'd be the time to just go ahead and I don't know if I'll have all the answers. There are a lot of things I don't have the answers to, but um, I can always make one up. No, (laughs) always do the best I can and to shoot straight with you. So here we are, the book of Jude, this little book, another one of these one chapter books that we tend to not look at very often. Uh, Jude was actually the half-brother of Jesus. Jude and James are mentioned as, as being uh, offspring of Mary. Um, Jesus was her first child, obviously, because she was a virgin when she had him. Uh, and, but she and Joseph went on to have other kids, boys and girls. And, and Jude was one of those, along with James, who wrote a book of the Bible And probably Jude, like James, really didn't get who Jesus was until after he had risen from the dead. Um, You you will hear, um, you know, well, because the Catholic Church believes in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never had relations with a man her whole life, you have to explain where all of Jesus' brothers and sisters came from. And they will suggest that maybe Joseph, being older, had kids from a first marriage and that they were, that they were older than Jesus and were there. But the, even as we, as we talked about bringing Jesus as the firstborn to the temple, there are other things in the scriptures that would mitigate against that. But at any reason, at any, at any rate, um, James and, and Jude grew up with Jesus and knew him well, and yet never really followed him until you know, he had already accomplished his ministry, died and rose from the dead. Jude has just a unique perspective. And in this book, he basically wrote it to warn the church about people who are destructive to the church. There, there's a particular category of people that he is describing that are absolute poison to a church. And he was just incredibly burdened to, to warn them. And so he goes into great descriptive details about the kinds of people who are dangerous to a church. But he, he couches it, again, as we saw with John doing in Second and Third John, he makes it a sandwich. And so his beginning and ending are positive truths reminding those who are reading of who they are in Jesus. And the introduction and the conclusion are two incredibly beautiful passages of Scripture, but he makes it clear that really the reason he's writing is because there's a danger, and he wanted to warn them of that danger. And so we begin reading, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That's kind of interesting. That He, he could have very easily said, Jude, the brother of Jesus, Um, but instead he saw himself as a servant of Jesus. Most people would have tried to trade off the association. And I'm sure it was refreshing to James, kind of, because he was used to everybody going, so you're Jesus' brother? And Jude's going, I'm James' brother, but I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And that's who we are, too. But he says, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ... Describing the children of God, those who have accepted Jesus Christ, 
as being called. God was the one who reached out to us. He spoke to us first. We, nobody searches for God without God first drawing them and speaking to them and ministering to them. And it's, I don't understand everything about God's call, but I love the fact that the Scripture says that He called me, but not only that, He sanctified me. He set me apart. He made me unique. God the Father does that through the work of Jesus Christ. Often we think of sanctification as being the process of us doing enough good things that we become sanctified, but the Bible's very clear that you just can't make yourself holy. It doesn't work that way. As much as justification is a work of God, so is sanctification, as will glorification as well. Those describe kind of the three phases, if you will, steps in the life of someone who is saved for eternity. They're declared righteous, justified. They're sanctified. They're set apart. They're holy. There's a difference. Um, They receive the righteousness of Christ, and then ultimately they're going to go to heaven. And all of that is simply because he did it to us. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not only called, but you're also sanctified. And, and in addition to that, you're also, as he says here, preserved. That word means guarded. He is setting you apart, and he chose you, and he is taking care of you and protecting you. You couldn't be safer than to know that what you have is God and Jesus Christ guarding you and protecting you. And then he says in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. God wants you to have way more mercy than you've had so far. He wants you to have way more peace than you've known up until this day. And he wants you to have way more love, receiving his love and showing his love. He wants that to be logarithmic in your life, to just be multiplied out because you can never have too much of God's love. You can never have too much of his mercy. You can never have too much of his peace. And so Jude's prayer is that what God has done in our lives already, that it would just be compounded um, in an amazing way. And we could go off on each of those and talk quite a bit, but I think we know mercy means you don't get what you deserve. And peace means that you don't have to do anything. You're, you're, you're comfortable, you're okay. And love means that he chooses to love you unconditionally and that his love is contagious. And if you realize he loves you, you can't help but want to love others. And so that's a, just a nice little greeting in those first two verses. But now he begins to talk about why he wrote the letter and he says, Beloved, and I like that he uses that term. He had just said, I want love to be multiplied to you. And now he says, those of you who are loved that way. While I was very diligent, the word there means I was fast, I was in a hurry, to write to you concerning our common salvation. He said, man, I really wanted to write down everything about the salvation that we share in common, the connection that we have in the Lord. And he said, when I started writing, that's what I wanted to do. However, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, Jude, we don't know of any other book he wrote And so maybe he had been working on his introduction and hammering it down, and then either something happened or God just impressed on his heart. It's great to build people up and tell them who they are. That's really important. But there's also some stark reality. And in in Jude's mind, it was the idea that we have some emergency concerns that you need to attend to. The, The life of the church, the life of a walk with the Lord is not just all about his mercy and his grace and his love and his peace because there are those within the church who would like to rob you of all that, who would want to get in the way of that. They gum up the works. 
And so he says, I, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting or encouraging you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. To contend for the faith. Now, I, a whole lot of people who write commentaries on this, and a lot of people who quote this verse nowadays, um, they take this verse and they act like what, what Jude was saying was, you need to go fight against people who don't believe the way you do. But the Bible never says that, and that's certainly not what he's saying here. He's not saying go do combat against heretics. But contend, battle for the faith. The same faith that's been delivered to everyone. The same faith that allowed us to get saved. That by grace, through faith, we come into a relationship with God. Faith means to believe in and to trust in. That you, that you commit your life and your future into the hands of another. And he's saying every one of us became Christians because of faith. But he said it's going to be a battle to protect that faith in your own life and in the life of the church. because And so often, very few people will really argue with the principle of grace through faith, that that's how you get saved. Um, and so when you talk about, hey, just accepting Jesus Christ by faith, receiving his grace, you don't get a lot of argument. But after people become Christians, so often they begin to trust in something other than God, for that finishing work in their lives. And so you often hear, yeah, you, you're saved by grace through faith, but, but it also you also need to get busy. You also need to do certain things. And, and sometimes people will even say that, that sanctification comes by doing things. The same faith that saves you is the same faith that sanctifies and glorifies you. It's not any different. It's why... Is why Paul always talked about all I do is preach Christ and him crucified. I just preach the gospel. Because Christ and him crucified is the key to our living the Christian life as much as it is in becoming a Christian. And if he says we need to contend for the faith, the obvious implication is there are going to be those who will present something other than that faith, that simple trust in Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, if you want to fight, fight for something. Fight for belief. Fight for trust. Fight for faith. Contend for that. And then he goes on and says why. For certain men have crept in unannounced, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Um, the word there for condemnation is the word krema, which we get the word crime from, but it, it, it refers to a decision at its basic thing. And so he's basically saying there are people who they had their minds made up a long time ago by this. This is something that's a pre-existing condition for them. They are ungodly men. And that word ungodly means they're, they're really not trusting in him and worshiping him in truth. Um, and, and not only that, they turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, an awful lot of times when people read this, and then he's going to go on, as you'll see, they think that what he's warning people about is those who are corrupting theology, those who are teaching against who Jesus is. But if you read the whole passage, it's hard to come to that conclusion. Um, for one thing, people who don't believe that Jesus is God, people who don't believe that he is the Lord, they aren't much of a threat to the church. I mean, it becomes pretty obvious that, that they aren't a part of what the Bible teaches about Jesus. In fact, they generally go start their own cult, and therefore they may damage people by pulling some people away. But notice in the language here that he says, certain men have crept in unnoticed. These people are much sneakier than simply having a bad Christology or bad theology. Um, if it was bad theology, he would make that clear. 
He is saying, though, that the, the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ are, as it's translated into the English, they're denied by the way these guys live. Because now when you read the whole rest of the passage, it's not about their teaching. It's not about their belief. It's not about their theology at all. It's about the way they do life and, and the way in which they are damaging the church by the way that they choose to live. And so by living the way they are living, they are in a sense denying the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's a mistake to suppose that that was their problem. In fact, when people go bad, their theology is usually the last thing to go. They'll usually keep the proper language. They'll say the right things. They begin to change the definitions of some of the terms, but they're very subtle. Most people who are hypocrites and, and you know, most people who, who have left really everything that there is to Christianity begin to teach heretical teachings and things like that. If you sit them down, they'll usually claim to believe all the right things about Jesus. That's the last thing to go. There's nothing you know, that would be subtle about someone who's teaching bad theology, but with these people you can tell it's something more than that. The first thing that it says about them, and, and it's important for us to know what he's talking about because the warning is for us as well. We need to be careful for people who would be a part of the church, who would want to connect with us as being brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet what the idea here is be careful because there are some people who are sneaky enough that they will come and undermine what God's doing in the church and here's what they look like. So it's important for us to have our guard up for this kind of behavior, but even more than that, it's really important for us to read this chapter and look in the mirror and make sure that we aren't one of the ones who is living out these kinds of of behavior that he's warning about and talking about. Because there's nothing in here that says these guys are deliberately doing what they're doing. They probably, all indications are that they think they're the most spiritual people in the church. And so it's important for all of us and for me to look at this and just go, I want to make sure that this isn't describing me. But when he says they turn the grace of our God into lewdness, um, they, they start with grace, but it turns into something else. The word there for lewdness is a word that literally means you are incontinent. That is, you can't control your, um, shall we say, bodily functions. It came to mean any kind of out-of-control behavior. But the idea here is they take the grace of God and then they lose control. They, they, they take advantage of people being gracious to them and they don't hold restrictions on themselves. It would also apply to people who would just go, well, you know, grace of God, I can just go do whatever I want. But as you read the rest of the passage, you don't get the feeling that that's the primary thing he's talking about because their behavior has to do with how they're reacting to other people for the most part. But the idea is, Grace can open the door for people who just want to gush all over the place and, and lose control of themselves. And, and that's what he's warning about. And when he says, and deny the only Lord God, that word for deny is a word, uh, the, the reason it's sometimes translated as deny, and it's not too bad, um, the root word is a word that means to flow. And that became a slang term for somebody who just keeps talking. Um, and then this word puts the A in the beginning of it, which negates it. And so it's like they're not speaking in this way about Jesus. And that's why the translation became to deny him. Um, it may mean something even more basic than that, because the literal meaning of the word is to not flow. And I think when you see how they're dealing with others, you might come to the conclusion, I have, um, that... The, the thing that's obviously going on is these people are kind of lone rangers and they're not flowing with that which the Lord is doing within the church. And you'll see that as we go through the passage. Um, they're not formally out there saying Jesus isn't God, he's not the son of God. There's nothing subtle about that. 
nothing. He wouldn't even have to warn the church about, oh, by the way, if people say they don't believe in Jesus, they're not Christians. Duh. You know, you, that's kind of obvious. So this is more the idea of not flowing um, along with our Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They lose control. Um, we continue reading in verse 5, and he says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This belief is set off with the faith that we are to defend. And what he does here, and he, he uses several examples, he's trying to establish that we understand without faith you cannot please God. And when you resist his work and you deny that trust in him, and instead you have your own agenda, then what you are doing ultimately is the same kind of sin that we've seen judged over and over again in the past. And so the first example that he gives is of Egypt. And he goes, look at all those Jewish people left Egypt. They were set free. And they went out into the wilderness, and all of them except the kids and Joshua and Caleb died in the wilderness. Why? Because of no faith. They didn't believe. They came to the point where God was going to lead them into the promised land, and they doubted. And they, and they did a bunch of other things that he's going to describe here in a moment as well. But they didn't have the faith to go forward with what God had clearly told them to do. And, as we're going to see some other examples, they rebelled against the leadership. They rebelled against those who God had put in that position. So he says, don't be surprised when a lack of faith leads to judgment. Because, you know, and like Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please God. The only way that you can really have a relationship with God is through trust, is through faith. And so he says, that's one example. And then he says, and not only that, in verse 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they didn't keep doing their job, but left their own abode, the place they were supposed to live, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So he says the angels who didn't stay where they were supposed to be doing what they did, that is, they lost faith, they stopped believing that the place that God had for them in heaven was the best place for them to be. So along with Lucifer, they rebelled against God, and, and now they're awaiting eternal judgment that's, that's certainly going to take place. So again, he's saying, in the first case, not believing God and not entering into his promises caused some people to, be, um, to die in the wilderness. But not only that, even with angels, when they refused to go along with the chain of command that existed in heaven, when they refused to accept their role in heaven and the place where they lived, then they too were cast into judgment. What he's establishing here is what he's going to get down to with these guys is that when you, when you don't trust God to be God and when you don't accept the leadership that he sets up, which is what these people were doing, then realize plenty of people before you have been judged for that. Now there are some people who take verse 6 and think that it refers to um, in Genesis chapter 6 where it says the sons of God cohabited with the daughters of men and there were Nephilim in the land and there's this whole interpretation and I, I hesitate to knock it because there are plenty of good people who believe it but they take that passage in Genesis 6 and they believe that this is, is angels having physical relations with humans and having giant offspring. And it's, to me, it smacks as kind of a fanciful interpretation. It comes from Jewish mystical commentators who came up with that. And so the same Jewish mystical commentators led to the idea that that's what this is referring to as well. Um, if you want to believe the whole you know, monster thing, that's totally fine with me, but I don't think that's what Genesis 6 is talking about. 
And to force it into this passage is just to try to support something that is unsupported by the rest of Scripture. The Bible, Jesus makes it very clear that angels are non-sexual beings. And so for them to have the capacity to come and have physical relations with humans to me is contradiction to Scripture. And Besides, if they had that ability, you'd think they'd still be doing it today, and some people think they are. Whenever I come upon a weird passage of Scripture, I'll admit when I don't know for sure what it means, but the last thing I want to do is to take the weirdest possible interpretation and adapt that one. So I'm just thinking it's probably something more normal than that. And, and here he's talking about the angels who were cast out because they rebelled. That fits the context a whole lot better, I think, as well. And then he gives another example, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, um, giving themselves over, having given themselves over to, um, literally to ex-porneo, um, immorality and everything that flows out of immorality. And they, they've gone after strange flesh. Um, strange, the word there is heteros in the Greek. It means... Another, and we would tend to associate homo with Sodom because of the homosexuality that was there. But in this case, the word heteros, which means someone else, the idea is that they were looking for something else. Ironically, when they were looking for something different, they stumbled on something that was too close to being the same, and that's how it came about. But he says they did this, and are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here's another example of those, in this case Sodom and Gomorrah, who were judged because they didn't believe. They rejected that which was shared with them. As even Lot was there in Sodom, and the scriptures tell us that he preached righteousness, that he spoke up, that he was a good man, and, and yet he was rejected. And, you know, even angels came and tried to get the message across, but the people in Sodom and Gomorrah just wouldn't hear the word of God and didn't want to do what he wanted them to do. They just wanted to explore uh, their potential. And again, notice the same theme is running through all these things. It's a lack of control. It's an unwillingness to place yourself under the authority of another, and it's a consequent judgment that comes from not walking by faith. Every sin ultimately is a sin against faith because we sin because we really don't believe that doing what's right is going to work out well for us. And so if I don't believe that God is going to provide for me, I decide I better provide for myself. A lack of faith leads to all sorts of other problems. And in this case, again, Sodom and Gomorrah, they lost control of themselves. And as a result, they faced judgment. So he prefaces his whole contention after saying there are people who are dangerous and they're falling under judgment and, and, they're, and they're living out of control. And then he goes, and by the way, you know what happens when people live out of control. You know what happens when people live without faith. And so now he says, verse 8, likewise, in the same way that this has historically been so often the case, also these dreamers, the people who he's talking about, who are destructive forces within the body, within the church, and he calls them dreamers because their mind is off somewhere else. They don't have a grasp on reality. They're interpreting reality based on what they think, what they feel, what works for them. These dreamers, first of all, he says, they defile the flesh. They, they, they twist and hurt and corrupt that which is what the flesh is designed for. But he says... They reject authority. These people, these dreamers, they can't handle any authority that's set up. And so by their nature, they are rebellious. That was the nature of Satan's sin in the beginning and the angels with him. 
They didn't like the way God had things set up. Now, ironically, Satan was probably the, the highest ranked angel that there was in heaven. But that wasn't enough for him. He didn't like his job. He wanted someone else's job. That is the job of, of God himself. And so through some crazy fantasy, a delusion of grandeur, they look at authority that's set up and they go, I don't want to be where I am. I want to be where he is. I want to be somewhere where I'm not. And so they dream up this, this fantasy world in which they are more significant than they believe they are. The truth is, if you're God's child, it doesn't get any more significant than that. But somehow, and through the lies of Satan and the way he does things, you can look at someone else and go, I should be where they are. I shouldn't be where I am. And the only way to deal with that is to rebel against authority, to challenge that which has been set up. And so that's what they do. And he says they also speak evil. The word there is, is literally is blaspheme. So they're speaking against um, dignitaries. The, the Greek word there for dignitaries is the word doxa. It's often, it's often translated glory. Um, the, the translators of the Bible are kind of assuming it's talking about people in positions of authority, and so they call them dignitaries. And that's probably legitimate, whether it's talking against spiritual authority, against God himself, or against people who are set up in authority. I don't think you have a big problem in the church with people speaking against angels or even against Jesus. So the warning here is probably against those who, again, by rejecting authority, now they speak evil against those who are getting attention. And what, what motivates these people is that if they see someone else getting positive attention, they reject that. They, they are angry about that. And so the jealousy that causes someone to not be able to stand to see someone else receive some attention. And we can pretend like there is no glory and everyone's just all humble and we all try to act like that. But the truth is God promises that he does bring us to glory, from glory to greater glory. And there are legitimate aspects of serving God that bring you positive attention that isn't a negative thing. I mean, I know like tonight with our worship, and we just had a great time of worship, but you could easily, and you don't, anytime Tiffany sings, I am absolutely blown away by the gift that God has given her. She has this effortless and not super trained or anything. It's this amazing, amazing voice. And I glorify God when I hear her. But it also means that, I mean, we don't have her you know, in the back room singing. She's on the stage. And naturally, there are people who look and go, that's so neat. I mean, here's a mom with two preschool kids and husbands in the Marines. And, and yet she spends the time to come here and glorify God and use her talent. And many people will say, well, glory for that. But there will always be other people who go, I, I'd like to do that. I should be getting that attention. They've never asked me to come up there and sing. I'm sure I could do better than that. There's this sick kind of, and a lot of you are laughing because you're like, yeah, the way I sing, not a problem. <laughs> but again, this isn't like everyone. That's the problem, is that in the church, there are these subtle little things that are planted. And anytime you do something for the Lord that works out, there are going to be some people that resent you for it, that wonder why it's you and why it isn't them. And so these people that he's describing are those who don't like authority. They don't like anyone having something that everyone doesn't have. They're all at least egalitarian, meaning everyone has the same thing. If not, they want special rights and special privileges. And the way that they try to get what they want is not by achievement or hard work, it's by speaking against whoever is there at the time. The easiest way for self-promotion is putting down someone else. And some people just resent anyone who is blessed. And, and you see that when God begins to work in your life, there are going to be some people you go, what, what's your problem with me? I'm, 
I'm not. I'm, and you, well, you find out what it is is they would like to be where you are. They think they're better than you are. They think you think you're better than they are. And this whole thing happens because of, because of a lack of faith, because of a lack of trusting God to take each of us and put us where we're supposed to be, to take someone who's in a position of authority and if they don't belong there, to remove them, to take someone who really deserves a shot and for God to give them the opportunity to do just that. But not trusting him, you take it into your own hands and you become resentful and you become negative and critical and jealous. And, and that's, what he's, that's what he's talking about here. And then he says, uh, he says, yet Michael the archangel, and this is in the context of blaspheming, because he uses the word again in verse 9. But he says, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a, it says reviling, but it's again literally transliterated, blaspheming accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Um, (laughs) This is a difficult verse. Because until you read Jude, you had no idea that at one point Michael was fighting against Satan over the bones of Moses. Why were they fighting over the bones of Moses? When did this happen? Um, What's he talking about? We don't know. This is the only place that talks about it. There are several ideas and theories. um, And there's no reason to doubt that this didn't happen. And I have some theories as to why they may have uh, had a fight over Moses' bones. It could have something to do with the fact that Moses is going to be resurrected um, during the tribulation period along with Elijah and be one of those two witnesses and who are testifying in the tribulation. And if so, perhaps there was this scrambling over his bones had something to do with his DNA and the, the resurrection that would end up coming from him. I don't know. People have all kinds of wacky theories. There is a... Now, some people have suggested that Jude is just going off some myth that he had heard. But it seems like he's saying something that actually happened. Now, uh, Origen, one of the early church fathers, referenced a book that, he, that was called The Assumption of Moses. And... Origen says that this story came from that book, The Assumption of Moses. So if there was a book called The Assumption of Moses, as Origen says there was, and it has this story, we don't have that book anymore. It doesn't mean that that was a book of the Bible. It doesn't mean that it was inspired by God. All it would mean is what he said in there was actually true. Now, there was a later um, book that we found at the, the uh, Assumption of Moses is a Greek book, but there's a Hebrew book called the, the Death of Moses that also has the same story. But the book of Death of Moses seems to have been written later, and so either the author of that book, um, which is apocryphal, either it took it from Jude, or perhaps when it was written had access to the book The Assumption of Moses, took the story from there. At any rate, <laughs> how, you can unwind that and Try to figure it out all that you want. But, it, but his point is that even Michael, the archangel, did not blaspheme, speak against the devil who's the lowest. If, there was ever, if it was ever right to speak against someone, it'd be the devil. And if there was ever anyone qualified to do it, it would be Michael while he's sparring with him over the bones of Moses. So his point is, even Michael doesn't speak against people who have a job, people who are in a position of authority. He respected the position enough to just say, the Lord rebuke you. And I I hear people using this often and saying, the Lord rebuke you, you know, because that's, it's not, the word doesn't doesn't mean that. The, The word that's translated rebuke here is interestingly, um, the word epitomeo, which is, um, tomeo is a word that means to honor or to value something. And epi means upon. 
And so what he's saying is that Michael, when he dealt with Satan, he actually challenged him upon his worth or his honor that he should have had. The word is used a lot of times in the New Testament talking about reminding people of who they were and of who they can be and of who they are. Trying to bring people up rather than putting them down. And so this, to use the word rebuke the way we use it, as if it was like, he just nailed them. Sorry it wasn't that at all. If anything, Michael lovingly challenged Satan to a higher opportunity, to a higher calling. And, and so his whole point is, hey, if somebody's in a position of authority or not, don't be attacking them. Don't be speaking against them. And it's a great reminder for all of us. So again, another example of that. Now he says, but these, going back to them, they speak evil of whatever they do not know. They don't let the fact that they don't know something keep them from having an opinion about it. And often people who are real dangerous in a church are people that don't let the facts get in the way. They just know what they want, what they think, And quite often they're people who pose as experts who have no training or knowledge or anything. They just instantly propel themselves into a self-anointed expert. And that's a real dangerous person. Someone who's an expert but doesn't have to be confused with the facts, um, doesn't doesn't have to establish a track record. The Bible says don't lay hands on people suddenly. This is why. You don't want to give people authority when they haven't you know, paid their dues by serving and proving themselves in minor ways. It's a huge mistake. I've seen it happen. I've been guilty of it plenty of times where you see somebody, wow, they're so gifted. You stick them up there and it totally goes to their head. And, and so he's saying, you know, these people, before they've learned what they need to learn, they think they already know. Nothing more dangerous than someone who thinks they know more than they do. Um, if anything, the smarter you get, the more you realize that you don't know, and, and, and experience should bring humility. But with these people, that doesn't happen. They speak evil of whatever they don't know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. That word there for corrupt means to rot or to wither, literally. And the idea is these people are building themselves up, but you just watch them as they put other people down, they begin to shrink. They become a shell of themselves. They become just a, a rotted, weak version of who they, who they were, who they thought they were. All by blaspheming people who are in authority. He goes on and says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Cain, who because he was jealous of Abel's sacrifice, he killed him. He took him down because he didn't like the fact that God had accepted the sacrifice that that Abel had offered. And God had shot Cain down. Well, Cain didn't want to be in second place. So, but he's saying, that's what this is like. That's the sin of Cain. Thinking that nobody else deserves to be in a position that's superior to yours. And you don't want to follow anyone else. He says, they've also run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. Balaam was the prophet who sold out his integrity in order to gain financially. And so he says, these people are selfish. They care about how they look. They care about what is good for them rather than to humbly accept that which God is doing. And then finally, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. We don't have time to look over there because I really do want to get through this, this book. But um, over in Numbers 16, Korah and a bunch of other guys, a couple hundred guys, 250 people, rose up and, and basically they tried to bring democracy to Israel. They tried to bring congregational rule to the church, if you will. And they said, hey, Mo- Moses, you and Aaron, you guys are really busy. And I'm concerned because some things aren't getting done. And I think you need to put us in a position where we can do what you can't do, what you're not doing. Let us fill the gaps so that, so that we can share in the authority that you have. 
Well, God didn't think too kindly of it, and the earth opened up and swallowed these guys up. Now, Jude is saying it's the same deal. When you try to take it upon yourself to give yourself authority or to question the authority of those who are in charge, to, to disrupt it and insist on having a vote in what, in what God is doing, you're sharing the story of Korah, you're running the risk of actually being judged, and they were judged, sadly, very severely. Now he says, these guys are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He gets going. He was talking about these guys share in your potlucks. The love feast was a meal they would have in conjunction with communion. And he said, these guys are sitting across from you, acting like they're your buddy, acting like, you know, oh yeah, they're part of things and we're all in it together. But he said, be careful, they are spots in your feast. Now, that word there, spots, is a word, probably a better translation is that they are rocks or reefs. It was a word that was used for a rock formation that existed just below the surface of the water. And a boat would come along, not seeing the rock, would hit the rock and the boat would be destroyed. And later as he's talking about raging waves of the sea and everything is probably where he continues this metaphor. But he said, they are sitting there fellowshipping with you, but trust me, they are like a reef just beneath the surface, ready to just rip you apart. And again, he says, they're serving only themselves. They're serving Sometimes there are people who just seem to want to do anything. But it's not what you do, it's why you do it. And often, and the Bible warns about this a lot, serving God while really what you're doing is serving yourself. And like Pastor Romain used to always say, you'll find out whether or not you're a servant once people treat you like a servant and see how you take it. And that's the way these people are. He says they're, the truth is they are in it for them. And you'll find that out as soon as they don't get the glory that they think they deserve, they'll rip your hull right open. And so he says, in doing that, they're clouds without water. Looks good, nothing there. They're car- I-, I wouldn't mind some clouds without water about now, but <laughs> he says, they're carried about by the wind. They're flaky and undependable. Late autumn trees without fruit. They're not- they have the appearance, but they're just not delivering the goods. They're not coming through. They're, they're twice dead. <laughs> they're just really dying because they not only aren't growing the fruit that's necessary, but they're also being pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, again, it's this lack of control. And in this case, it leads to angry outbursts, the, these explosive, you know, just raging, foaming up with their own shame. They, they aren't even embarrassed at the way they're exploding um, because they're so intent on their own agenda. Wandering stars. The word there for wandering, the Greek word, is the word from which we get our word planet. They believed that the planets were stars that were just kind of wandering around. But in this case, it's like they see themselves as stars, but they really aren't. They're just drifting around. They, they draw attention to themselves and they desire to make themselves a star, but they aren't. And that just makes them mad. That just makes them much more angry. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now another interesting example that he gives. Now Enoch, you remember Enoch in Genesis, he, before the flood he, he walked with God and he got raptured, just taken up into heaven. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he was seven generations down from a descendant of Adam. He prophesied about these men saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, We don't know where Enoch said this, 
um, because this is the place where you find it in the scriptures. There's nothing in, the, in Genesis that even says Enoch was a prophet at all. But he, what Jude is saying is when, when Enoch prophesied of these people who would speak against God and what he's doing and the judgment that would ensue on them, which in that case was probably a reference to the flood that would come, um, he said that's the same kind of a situation. He's just building up another analogy. Now there is a, a, a book called the Book of Enoch that's, a, that's one of the pseudepigrapha, a book that's probably certainly not written by Enoch, not as old as Enoch. Um, it was probably made up by somebody else. And it does have this quote in it, though, which is interesting. We don't know exactly when the book of Enoch was written, but we don't have any of them that are that, you know, for hundreds of years after, after Jesus. Um, it's possible that, that the book of Enoch was consulting the same source that, that Jude had, and therefore this was, had been recorded and passed down through a tradition um, and not necessarily in any, in any inspired work. But since it is in this inspired work, I believe that Enoch said it. And what Enoch was warning about again was people who speak against that which God's doing and, and who resist and, and fight against it and blow their stack. And so he says, he describes them further, these are grumblers, complainers. Grumblers, this word is... People who are just looking at the way things are and always seeing what's wrong. They're, they're critical. They have a critical spirit. If, if they tell you what they think of something, it's always going to be, here's what's wrong with it. And then the word for complainer is a little bit different. It's a word that means, I don't like my situation. I don't like what God has done in my life. So we would call grumbling and complaining about the same but grumbling is complaining about specifically about what someone else is doing, and complaining is, is griping about your situation, an unhappiness about your situation. They're grumblers, complainers. They walk according to their own lusts. That word lust, epithumia, means that they get worked up. Uh, thumia is a word that meant to breathe hard because of passion. Epi means upon. And so these are people who are griping, complaining, and they're driven by their own out-of-control passion. Um, and usually referring to, to just not being able to hold it in. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. It's interesting that so often people who will do the most damage and who have the most bad things to say are also the best people at buttering you up. But they kiss up to people in order to get what they want. And, and we, we tend to learn that if you, if you kiss up to the right people, you'll be able to control them. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. But they're just like all puffed up and acting super sweet. Just a, a good rule of thumb, and you can just keep this in your head and watch it, when you find someone who is just syrupy sweet, who just seems, oh, they're just so sweet, I almost guarantee you that they have some huge anger issues built up inside them, and they're covering for it. I've seen it hundreds of times. Years ago, Pastor Ken Ortiz told me that about, about somebody that we both knew, and sure enough, it turned out to be the case. Since then, I've just seen it time and time again, and, and that's what he's saying here. Look out for people who mouth great swelling words and flatter you. Be careful of flattery. Be careful of people who appeal to your ego and make you, make you feel good. Because generally people who are over the top that way, it's going to come back to haunt you when they don't get what they want. And so he says, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ how they told you that there would be mockers, phonies, in the last time who would walk according to their own godly lusts. The same word. He said, all the apostles have said, no, there are going to be people who act like they're with you, who pretend to be side by side, arm in arm, battling with you, but it's fake. 
ultimately their passion will drive a wedge between you. And he says that's always been warned. These are sensual persons. It's not necessarily talking about they're sleazy people. The word they're sensual is just the word soulish. They're suke people. The soul is your mind, your will, your emotions, the immaterial part of you. And it's often set apart in conjunction with your spirit, but it's also sometimes set in opposition to your spirit because the spirit is that part of you where God is speaking to you. It's hard to tell the difference between suke and pneuma, spirit. And he's saying these people seem like spirit, but in actuality it's their own desires, it's their own opinions, it's their own thinking, their own emotions that's actually driving. But they put a spiritual label on it, and so if they get mad at something, they say that's righteous indignation. If they don't trust someone, they say, I think God's leading me not to trust them. If they don't like something that someone is doing, they disagree with them. They don't say, I think you're wrong. They say, I don't bear witness with this brother. The Spirit is just telling me. No, if the Spirit was telling you, he would have put you in charge. But he's saying, these people don't know the difference. They think they're spiritual. Really, all they are is just very psyche-ish. They're very soulish. And they cause divisions. Literally, the word there means they separate themselves. They're the ones who will turn on their heels and walk away when they don't get their way. And that's something that, of course, the Scripture tells us many times. One of the things that God hates is the one who sows discord among brethren. He said, these are the people who start it. These are the people who say, if you won't do it my way, I'm going to take my ball and go home. The church was never supposed to be divided. We've come to accept it because it's so common everywhere in every church because there are so many people who want to run things. There are so many people who want it done their way. And if they don't get it their way, there's a church down the street they can link up with. And they don't like that one, they can go to another one. That wasn't the way God designed the body. You know, if I don't like my hand, and and I'm really not crazy about my hand. I have, because of some nerve injuries and stuff, my hand isn't as strong as it used to be. And it's kind of caved in between the thumb and forefinger um, because of atrophy that set in because of issues that I had in my neck and my arms. So I'm not crazy about my hands, but I don't cut them off and get a hand transplant. It just, that would create a lot more problems. But that's the way these people that he's warning about are, is that it's just a constant, you know, I'm going to go, I'm leaving, I'm dividing, and I'll take people with me. And it That's just, we've just become so accustomed to that, we don't think anything of it. Jude says, you got to look out for this. This destroys what Jesus wants to do in the body. And and so because of their feelings, they get their feelings hurt, so they separate themselves, not having the Spirit, not really hearing from God, not, not being filled and controlled with the Spirit. Instead, they're just controlled by their own opinions. And so he says, but you, beloved, and I love that. He goes, I'm not saying that you're one of these. I'm saying you're somebody who's loved, like I told you before, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. He says, for you, you don't, tear other people down, build yourself up in God's love, stay in that, you know, be constructive in what you are called to do. Keep yourselves in the love of God and look for the mercy of the Lord Jesus. And, and um, so praying in the Holy Spirit, he may be referring to praying using the gift of tongues because over in 1 Corinthians 14, he uses the same phrase to refer to that. There are several places in the New Testament where it talks about praying in the Holy Spirit where it's not clear that that's the case. So if that's a gift that God has given you, it would certainly apply. But I think for everyone, we should be praying with the Holy Spirit guiding us. Romans 8 tells us that we have that privilege, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. But it's so important for us to submit 
And that's what all of this stuff that he's talking about comes from a lack of submission. But when we submit to the Spirit, and we submit to authority, and we submit to what God is doing in other people's lives and positions that they have, when that happens, then we are praying in the Spirit. And the way you know you're praying in the Spirit is you're praying in line with that which builds up rather than that which tears down. You're not praying against people and what they're doing. You're praying for what God is doing and you're excited and positive about what He is doing. But then he goes on and says, and we'll finish it up here, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. In other words, you need to make a judgment call sometimes. Sometimes there are people who just, you know, they're caught up in this and they don't even know what's happening to them. There are other people who totally know what they're doing and they need literally to have the hell scared out of them. They need to be rejected and, and, and admonished. So he goes, how you react to these people, you need to be discerning and you need to see how God leads you to deal with them. And it might be that one person deals with them one way and another person deals with them another way and that's fine. But ultimately, understand that they're absolutely destructive to the church and you need to be aware of it. And then finally he just closes with this beautiful prayer benediction. I love this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. In other words, when people are doing this, it doesn't have to take you down. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That is, if other people are finding fault with you, if other people are attacking you and putting you down, I am committing you to the one who says you're faultless. He, he finds no fault in you. He does not condemn you. Focus on the one who will present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Other people may resent your glory. He's going to show off your glory. To God our Savior. Usually it talks about Jesus as our Savior, but here it's to God our Savior, who alone is wise. I could spend an hour, I have spent an hour reflecting on that phrase, <laughs> come to think of it. He is the only one who's wise. So in dealing with these things, he's sharing his wisdom, but he's also saying, you know, remember God is the one who knows everything. He is the one who is wise. That takes the pressure off me. I don't have to be wise. I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to address every problem and know exactly how to respond to it. I have to trust him because he's the only one who is wise. I have to get wisdom from him. It's his wisdom, not mine. A lot of times when we come under attack, we think way too much. And then we say way too much. And it just becomes a huge problem. Jude's just reminding him, he alone, alone is wise. Sometimes being alone is good when you're alone with the one who is alone and wise. But to him be glory and majesty, dominion and power, authority, both now and forever. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. I pray that you would help us. Lord, point out to us areas where we may need to address these kinds of dangers. I confess to you now, Lord, I, I avoid this like the plague. And I go into denial and pretend like Things aren't there when they are. Look the other way. Lord, help us to courageously confront where you lead us to. Protect us, protect our body from these reefs that lie under the surface that would tear us apart. And, and Lord, I pray that for each of us, myself included, we would hold this scripture up to our lives and make sure that we aren't starting to act like some of these characteristics. That we wouldn't act out of our hurt or insecurity, jealousy, that we wouldn't fight for our own authority, but that we would allow you to do what you do and that we would be faithful to do everything that you've called us to do. 
Thanks for this journey through your word. We look forward to next week just talking about anything and answering questions and and then in another in another couple of weeks to begin studying the book of Revelation that you promise a blessing for those who will read it. Lord, bless us through this Christmas season. I pray that the Christmas Eve service on Friday would just be honoring to you and enjoyable for all of us. Lord, I pray that you would bless the people who are in difficult situations right now because of the storms. God, I pray that this Christmas, for reasons that maybe we can't even expect, maybe, maybe you've brought some incredible hurt into our life this year at Christmas, but I know you wouldn't do that unless you had a really, really good reason. So we submit to you as our, as our Lord. And we'll accept whatever it is that happens. I pray that Christmas would, would be honoring and pleasing to you in the way that we conduct ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.